Welcome to Movie Maniacs, discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. My name is Chuck Curry, alongside my co-host, once again, Kenny B. You're listening to Movie Maniacs, a weekly radio uh, podcast and radio show that we do on W-O-W-O, WOWO out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, every Saturday night at midnight. This is a program where we talk about the world, the wonderful world of motion pictures, television, and anything related in between to pop culture that all inter. Connect on this week's program. I'm going to talk about the movie The Flash, which I got a chance to see last night. The highly hyped, long awaited big screen version of Flash, which feels like uh, I've been waiting for the last uh, few years to actually see uh, our top 10 list, which we always do in the latter half of this program, will be our top favorite. Uh, B-movies, and it uh, delves into different uh, genres of what we consider B. That should be a lot of fun in the second half of this program. We're going to do a little bit of uh, movie news and uh, anything else that pops into our head. Uh, now I'm going to introduce my co-host, Kenny B. Ken, how you doing? Hope uh, everything is good with you. I'm doing fine. I feel like I'm in an old Frankenstein movie with the uh, thunder behind me, and we have thunderstorms <laughs> here at the beach, so uh, it gives a little uh, a little bit of ambiance. And I got to tell you, I, I saw what I think was a very good Netflix series this week. Oh, what'd you say? Starring Arnold, of all people. Arn- actually, uh, guest starring Tom Arnold, too. So you get Arnold and Arnold. It is Fubar. Fubar. I got to get a chance to watch it. So tell me what you think. I, I really liked it. A great, great premise. I, I got to tell you, if if they don't make Monica, uh, what's her last name, uh, the Barbaro, bon, the, the who was the brunette lady pilot in Maverick. Uh, Maverick. Yeah. Yeah. If, if they don't make her into the next action star, they be crazy because not only is she beautiful. But she really fills that role well. You know, the premise is Arnold's a retiring CIA agent, and he's got to go to Guyana to uh, save an agent who's gone off the grid. And he finds out that that agent is his daughter. And he didn't realize his daughter was also a CIA agent. And uh, they it's one of these things where a lot of people get killed, a lot of blood and all that stuff, but it's a comedy. So, oh, so what about the production? What about the production cost? If, does it feel like uh, mm. they they put some uh, bang behind the buck here? It, it it does. Yes, it does. They I really uh, I think I think they um, for a limited TV series, I think it's very well done. It's definitely can come back for a season two. And um, let's face it, Arnold is his best when he's tongue in cheek, when he's making fun I, of himself. I, I don't. I, I don't disagree with that. Listen, the guy's 75 years old. I, I still think he's extremely likable. Uh, he's just one of those inter- one of those relatable type pop, pop culture personalities that even in his 70s, uh, I, he still clearly has it, which I think's really good. I got to check that out this week. Anything you, else on your mind? Well, I was going to say, if you remember, to, uh, if you remember from the blacklist, uh, he always had he always had that guy that would come in to do the tortures. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Tom Arnold is that guy in this really? thing, and he he is hilarious from the first well, how time. How much screen time does he get? How much screen time does he, he get? He's on for a few minutes in like three episodes. 
But they, they introduce him with, you know, some guy uh, um, hits his car, I think, with their shopping cart. And uh, Tom Arnold then goes and beats the heck out of this guy, even though, you know, Tom is old and frail. But it's a, it's very, watch it. It was very, uh, very good to watch. Very fun. I also saw, and I liked, but it was kind of, it's kind of strange. It's a series from Portugal. It's called Turn of the Tide. And a little, a little bit quirky. A lot, again, a lot of blood, drugs, and all that stuff. But um, not, you know, people in this country aren't very familiar with the Azores, and it might be worth watching just to find out about this little island nation in the middle of nowhere, the Azores, and it's uh, it's set there. So it was interesting to watch for eight episodes. I don't expect that one to see a season two. Very good. Uh, before I talk about my review of the Flash, we're just going to get into the box office totals of this past week. Uh, another big popcorn fit movie can't hit the marketplace, which was Transformers: Rise of the Beast, 61 million here in the in the U.S. and uh, Canada. I think it added another 100 million overseas. I think Paramount was fairly happy with that number. Do I think it's a great number? It's not a great number, but I guess uh, it, it was good enough for what they expected. So that was the number one uh, attraction. Over the weekend, Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, another $55 million to put its 10-day toll at $225 million. Uh, really good reviews, good exit polls. Word amount on this film is good, so it should have some legs, at least for the next few weeks. Little Mermaid, Disney's live-action version of that uh, story, uh, $23 million, $220 million in three weeks of release. Domestically, the film's done well, so-so. Uh, overseas uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and uh, The Boogeyman a new horror film ran out the top 5 just want to point out one thing Fast X which uh, did 5.2 over the weekend I think it came in uh, 7th uh, $138 million in the United States in 4 weeks they've already put it on stream uh, or, or pay per view as I should say if you want to watch it at home you can pay you 24 99 to own anything 1999 to rent it but uh i mean let's be honest uh ken four weeks in theaters and they're throwing a thing on stream already uh i don't know i'm amazed either it's twofold either they want to get their investment back as quick as possible or they feel the iron is the hottest so why not strike it when the film still has some juice by playing in theaters, get it on streaming. Uh, I guess there's an argument for the psychology of both, but I, I just think uh, as a partnership with theaters, they should just let it play out for 45 days before they put it on pay-per-view. You have thoughts on that one? I, I wonder in this one, because you know I'm Mr. 17 Days, you're Mr. Uh, 42, but I wonder in this one whether it has anything to do with it, the fact that you had Spider-Man coming out, the fact that you had Transformers coming out, and they thought that there was too much competition for them just Maybe. in the studio, uh, just in the theaters. But it still did five million, five million over the week in the three days domestically. It's not like it's on gas fumes doing a couple hundred thousand, but I guess that, that's that's what they want to do. This, I, I'm, I'm assuming they sit in a boardroom and discuss these different strategies, how quickly they rec can recoup their money, and that's what they decided to do. So anyway, I got a chance to see The Flash night, last night. It did $9.7 million in preview showings, which puts it on target for what they're saying around a $70 million opening weekend, possibly 80. Uh, it's amazing because a film, before I review it, a film 
that last month premiered, or two months ago actually premiered at CinemaCon, got great buzz, a lot of raves in that initial screening among 4,000 theater owners and blog critics. But as we get closer to the release, you started to see some naysayers around the edges. Rotten Tomatoes score now is 68% positive. I, I thought based on CinemaCon, this would be a movie in the 80s easily. So I know some people who saw it. I, I know some people who were sort of mixed on it, some people who really liked it, and some people who were turned off on it for whatever reason. So, And I'm going to talk about the baggage in a second about going into movies in our current social uh, culture. But anyway, I got to say, I like this movie. I thought uh, this is a Flash movie. Uh, it is an Ezra Miller movie. And again, that was in... in Miller being a divisive, not only a divisive personality off screen, which is apparent or evident, but his quirkiness is not for all tastes. But I got to tell you, I enjoyed him and I thought he gave, I don't want to use the word great, but it was close to a great performance as two Barrys. He's playing two, two of the, he's playing the same character in two different variations because they're in a multiverse in the same universe. And he is very good for not for a second did I think that this is the same actor playing these two characters. Uh, the movie uses a lot of quirky humor and the script clearly is written around his, 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 his sense of humor. Um, I, so I thought he was really good. So the heart and soul of this movie is a Barry movie. It has an emotional uh, resonance with him uh, going into uh, a, a different, uh, altering a timeline to stop the death of his mother so it has an emotional power to it uh to bring in michael keaton as batman i gotta say uh every scene keaton's in he's a very important part of this movie his introduction i thought was really good uh when he comes out in the batman suit for the first time ken i thought it was awesome uh spearheaded by the score of danny elfman who did the batman score back in 19 19- 89. Every scene Keaton is in this movie is important. There's no waste. This is not filler. Uh, it's all really good stuff. He looks great in the Batman garb. The first fight sequence that he has, I think, was absolutely excellent. Uh, so big thumbs up uh, to Michael Keaton in this movie. Uh, an actress named Sasha Cowan plays Supergirl. I thought she was fine. She did a good job. Ben Affleck. Uh, as, as he has, I don't know, maybe six minutes of screen time, but he's very effective as Bruce Wayne Batman. You see him mostly in the beginning of this movie. They bring back Jeremy uh, Irons as Alfred from the Batman v Superman movie. I thought he was really good. Um, overall, some of the cameos I thought were very interesting, and there's which I'm not going to give away because it would be a massive spoiler. But Ken, there is a there is a, uh, a a cameo at the end of this film where an actor sort of rep- well he reprises a role that he had in a past uh, DC movie, and I got to tell you, my jaw hit the floor because I was uh, I couldn't believe it uh, that they went this route. I laughed. I was like, really? Okay. Uh, I think it'll be much. T- talked about but overall i thought the action sequence was a good uh, I, I thought the direction was solid is it a perfect film is is not uh having said that it played a lot like a movie that it gives homage to which is back to the future from 1985 because this is a time travel movie at the end of the day i thought it was very character driven for the most part it does require 
uh, an attention span, which is something people do lack to an extent. Nowadays, its running time is two hours and 25 minutes. It held my attention for every minute. I was never bored. Uh, for the most part, I was satisfied. I liked it. I give it an eight out of 10 I think listen if you like superhero movies you should see The Flash if you like Batman you gotta see this movie because Michael Keaton is an iconic Batman his scenes are fantastic uh, again I think the linchpin to this movie I think is Ezra Miller because he's an acquired taste to an extent he's a very quirky personality I'm, just, I'm not judging what he's done off screen I'm judging what's on screen it is an art and that's what I in turn when I sit down and watch it, I, I just I'm judging the film. I'm judging an actor playing a character as as seven said that Ezra Miller did an absolutely fantastic job as Barry Allen, two Barry Allens and the Flash in this movie. Uh, the direction is uh, is 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 very good by Andy uh, Miss Stella, who did the It movies. I think he is a very talented guy. Some people complaining about the CGI in certain spots is iffy i didn't notice much of it uh it looked okay to me uh but overall this is character driven film with good emotion good action great seeing michael keaton as batman the cameos especially in the last act were really interesting uh so overall do i think this is worth seeing absolutely i say go see the flash and can i gotta tell you if you watch this movie when you watch this last cameo in the last three minutes I think you're gonna go. Wow, that was really, really interesting. So, I recommend the Flash. I'm, I'm gonna have to watch it. You know, when we talked about this before, and I unfortunately didn't get the tape in in time uh, first to yeah. broadcast it, but it, it comes up again is because of Ezra Miller. You know, uh, because last week you asked me what I thought of all this, and uh, you know, first of all, I'm not, I'm not a fan of Ezra Miller. I wouldn't know if I saw him next door because it's right. not. I'm okay. not. I don't watch those kind of movies, but. You know, Fatty Arbuckle lost his career for something that, as time's gone on, we've, you know, all, yeah, he had a predilection for younger, legal age, always okay. important, legal age girls. Of course. So it was, it was, it was legal. It was at that time when, yeah, it was expected in Hollywood. That's how you, a starlet became a star and somebody died, but it turns out she really died because of her own internal medical condition. Kevin Spacey has been not convicted of anything in the court of law. In fact, he's, you know, he's undefeated right now. Did you, and, let me ask you a question. Did you read the article or the interview Kevin Spacey just gave? No, I'm going to have to because oh, I, Okay, you read it. And what, this is important because then I'm just going to state this and then you bounce off this. Kevin Spacey just gave an interview. Uh, I, I think it was in England. And he said that once he's cleared in this last case, which he says he will, that he has the door will open a lot of people have told him that they'd like to hire him and he says that it, it, despite the fact that he feels I'm, I'm paraphrasing that uh the media has destroyed his career that the, the, the reaction among the general populace that he sees on the street are very warm and and very um very understanding of the 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 beatdown that he's had in his career. Now, here's the thing. He's been accused of certain things. He's been uh, exonerated in two cases. So the thing is, like you just stated, is it fair to put a, put, put certain people literally or figuratively uh, on the cross 
uh, for what people deem is inappropriate behavior. Is there a timeline where, you know, a person's just hammered so much and their career is beaten down so much? Do they have a chance uh, at a redemption? Do they have a, a second? Does Kevin Spacey have a chance? Should he be allowed to work again and be accepted as a working actor? You don't have to like him off screen. That's a given. But does he have a right to be a working actor and resume his career if he's not convicted of any crime? If, if you are an actor and you are hitting on people who are of legal age, whether same sex or other, uh, you know right. what? It's it sorted me. My favorite scene in every any movie ever is when Louis says, I'm shocked to hear there's gambling going on here at Rick's and they bring his winnings out to him. Um, and Because, hey, I'm shocked to hear that this happens. You know, we just saw it this week. It, I don't know if Elliot Page even has a career anymore, but I really loved Elaine, or uh, Ellen Page, Ellen Page right. before, she became, before she became Elliot. But it came out that right. she claimed yeah. that she and her co-star in Juno had sex yeah. all the time. A female co-star who's now very upset about her bringing that out, and it raises a very interesting issue there. Well, since Elliot Page, Elaine, Ellen Page at the time, still identified as a man, was that knowing same sex with the with her uh, partner, or her, was her partner being raped by somebody who thought they were a man? That's going to be the next big controversy we're going to have. I mean, my God. How many times have people making movies ended up shacking up together? Like since the beginning of uh, time, how you know how many people did we find out uh, star couples? Where did they meet? Oh, they made a movie together. It happens. Yeah, I, I mean, I tend to agree with you saying. I mean, I think there's you know not to dwell into these multiverses, but in reality, there's there there are there are there's one universe, and that's called reality, and uh, we meet you know people meet each other, people connect, people hook up. Uh, people get married, people get divorced, people argue. Uh, there's so many different factors among human behavior. I, I find it hard to believe that people are so offended or shocked by what other people uh, do. And again, if you break the law, you break the law. I understand that. But uh, it, it just seems to me that we hit a, a you know, with a, with a lot of different things in the last three or five years some i i respect and and they're certainly justified and is an argument to be made in the middle of most of a lot of these things but you know trying to act like people's careers should be ended uh i think as a whole uh is a very slippery slope indeed to walk down because those who walk might uh slip themselves especially if they uh, look in the perennial mirror ken absolutely Okay. Uh, one other, a few other, a few other things. Uh, this week uh, in 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 uh, film history, it's hard to believe, Ken, but thirty years ago this week, uh, Jurassic Park opened in movie theaters. As I stated, it was the best movie going experience I, I've ever had. Eleven hundred fifty seats sell out at the Ziegfeld. Incredible. That was the height, or one of the heights, of the popularity of the popcorn mainstream summer movie. I stated last night, because I, I introduced The Flash, and I just want to point this out, that it just feels to me, and I have to be honest, and I was honest with the audience, that the excitement level and the people who watch movies now go to the movies, I don't feel they're as excited or understand the history of film. I think to a lot of people, especially the younger generation, I think going to a movie is more of a two-hour divergence 
uh, something to uh, let's do something for two hours. I don't think they have that built up excitement waiting months on end for a certain movie to be released to chat before chat after uh, talk about it. Uh, write it on social media. There are still some people who do it, but I just think the culture is very different. And I did uh, watch one review on YouTube. I forget the reviewer, but I do respect him. I think he's really good. Next week, I'm going to mention his name. He was reviewing Indiana Jones and the Dollar Destiny. And he stated something which I completely agree. He said the sad reality of this culture of people who watch movies or review movies or even or watch and review is that they look at things, uh, he used the word uh, binary, and he said that people look at things as either great or awful, good or bad. Not everything, there's a middle ground. Some movies are flawed, but they still have really good stuff in it. That doesn't mean uh, if you don't like one part, the movie becomes awful. Uh, and I think that's what's happened. I think I think it's hard to walk in. I would say this to myself when I walk into the flash. It's hard not to walk into that theater door without dragging uh, perennial baggage with me because I've heard so many different things. So uh, it, it's almost like you're watching something, but you're being influenced by two little devils on your left and right shoulder of people on social media who told you what to think, what to feel, and how to act. I think when Jurassic Park came out 30 years ago, that was not the case. People walked into that movie, they wanted to love it, and they did love it. Now I think people walk into movies waiting to knock it, and I think that's really the biggest difference in the last 30 years, and that is a trend that I find uh, pretty sad. And, and, you know, I think another part of that problem is that we would have never thought when we were going to movies as you know, as teenagers or even before, especially when we paid, you know, when we were paying ourselves, not, not, not our parents, to go see that movie. We never would have thought of bringing our phone with us and texting for two hours no. through the movie. But I think the fact that people, one of the problems that movies have, uh, you know, in a movie theater is that you almost expect people to put all that stuff away for two and a half hours and my god you, yeah you really expecting a millennial to go two and a half hours i mean it millennials in their phone checking social media is as bad as my mother used to be with a cigarette you know if she didn't have a cigarette yeah, I mean, for an hour but, but but it does go into the 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 reality of the human brain being uh like a sponge and it's an addictive sponge and we are to some extent all addicted to that phone in our pocket but i do agree you know it's one thing when one or two people have a phone out in the theater but when half or three quarters of the audience is popping at their phone you have to say to yourself like what are you doing here uh but that's just uh, the the way uh the, the way it's become. I just want to point out because we're going to close this segment. One one bit of movie news that I just read today, which sort of took me by surprise, but it's from Variety, so it's accurate. They are reporting that Warner Brothers wants to get back into the Chris Nolan business. Nolan left the studio after Tenant because he didn't like the way it was distributed uh, with COVID being uh, streamed and in theaters at the same time. They evidently, Variety reporting that Warner Brothers is willing to open up. Uh, the vault back up the truck pay him a lot of money for him to possibly do a new another Batman trilogy and bring back Christian Bale now I love Nolan's Batman movies with Christian Bale I love them but if that would happen then you'd have that universe you'd have the rotten Robert Pattinson Batman universe and then you'd have the James Gunn uh, overseen DCEU Batman universe. so you have three different Batman universe 
uh, almost at the same time. That might be a little bit too much. Having said that, uh, I, I, I would give a lot to see Christian Bale and Chris Nolan come back for three more Batman movies because uh, those were great, great movies, Ken. You sure Adam West isn't Batman? Uh, I'm just going to say this. If you watch this Flash movie, you might know the answer to that question. Oh, no. I, 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 have, I hope I didn't give away your... Your um, your ending you didn't want to give away no, there. No, no, that is okay. not. But he's not. He's, you, he's I'm, dead, I'm, isn't I'm he? Gi- I'm giving you a, a little, a little, okay. a little taste. Okay, but this isn't. I think Adam West died. He did, but there's a thing called CGI, Ken. No, I meant it's okay. Okay, yes. I, I was. I was trying to be facetious there with that one. But you know what? One last thing before we slip, slip into your last um, movie news. Um, there. The idea that everything has to either be great or awful, yes or no, black or white. Yeah, the last right. thing, the last thing everyone do is make a movie that people all either the people either love or hate. What you want is to make a movie that people all can find something they love, and they all might find something that's not the best for them. Because that way, it it's, it it actually means more people will actually enjoy it. I agree. Here's another thing, last thing. When people walked into, let's say, West Side Story in the 60s, I don't think anybody walked into that theater not wanting to like it. It was never, I don't think it was in their head. Boy, I'm going to walk out of this theater complaining about something. They wanted to watch, they wanted to enjoy, have a good time, and they did. I think a lot of it is a mindset, and I think a lot of people go in to, to films because there's so much written, so much discussed, uh, so much over analyzed that they're looking to not like, and I I think that uh, that it, that that ultimately is a problem. Yeah, it's just like Mary Todd said to Abraham Lincoln, "Would it kill you to just go to the theater with me for one night?" <laughs> one other bit of movie news, and we'll move into our main topic. Uh, it appears Disney is in the planning stages of they've got a writer. Uh, and they got a director, and they're going to evidently do a third entry in the Hocus Pocus franchise, the first film, which we all know has become a big pop culture movie that people seem to really dig, especially at Halloween time. Uh, and then they did a directed Disney Plus sequel last last year, which performed evidently fairly well, brought back the original cast. It was so-so. Now, will the original cast return here? It appears they will. How much screen time they'll get? They're probably going to, from what I read, focus on a couple of the side characters. Now, the question, Ken, if you're going to do this just to have the name attached, which is what they always want, and you don't bring the original cast back to be prominent in the film, uh, is that worth doing? I I don't think so. I think, you know, we saw that's what ultimately killed things like the... uh police academy franchise but you know it's, to me it's uh, just it's not the same and you get you get disappointed because you compare just like i think disney learned that from the debacle that was mary poppins returns that mm, you can't just get by on the name even the characters are the same name but the actors are different yeah but i mean mary poppins are two you didn't so you i actually i actually to a certain extent enjoyed that movie it's not the original but I did think Emily Blunt was quite good. Uh, I thought it had a lot of entertainment value. I thought the scene with Dick Van Dyke was was still very special, especially guy his age and stature, you know, doing that song and dance number. I thought it was really good. Um, and they spent 
money and they put a marketing campaign behind that. I think the problem with Disney is, and, and it's sort of surprising because I never thought they would go this route. Uh, I mean, they really have sold out their library, and and if it's if they could attach re- name recognition to make a buck, they 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 seem to be all in, especially in the last decade of doing that with their live action library. Uh, um, I, I just I don't know. I think you have to be. I think you should show respect for the entity in the in the in the franchise itself. I and mean, if you're going to do it, uh, do it with conviction. Don't do it on the cheap. So if you're going to do Hocus Pocus three, bring back the original cast again. Get a good screenwriter. Put some real effort and production value into it, and uh, we'll we'll call it a day. So let's bounce into our before we bounce uh, into our just a little bit of sure television news which is also movie news and that is that it appears before we see the third Downton Abbey movie we may see season seven of Downton Abbey a lot of of chatter out there that and apparently a lot of the original uh, cast is uh, still interested of course Maggie can't come back because I don't think they're going to have a different universe here, and we just killed her off in the <laughs> last movie. Multiverse, okay. Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I for me, I would be thrilled because let's face it, the two movies yeah. have basically been two episode TV series, so right. uh, it'd be I think it'd be big news and be interesting to see something go TV movie and back to TV. Uh, that would be very interesting, actually. In, in Monday, I don't think they've done that before but that would certainly be uh be interesting but with the you know the innovation of the popularity of of television and streaming i i don't think that would be uh too much heavy lifting to do it all so now let's bounce into our top 10 favorite b-movie action films or exploitation uh lower not lower budget but movies that you know not going to win uh any, any oscars but we really seem to dig. I'm going to start th- this week. Uh, here's my number 10 through six. My number 10, I went, I'm going to go back to 1982, Silent Rage with Chuck Norris. Uh, it basically Chuck Norris against a Michael Myers-like nonstop killing machine. I remember seeing this in a theater. I, don't, I think it was, I know I saw it in Brooklyn. I think it was the Graham Theater. And it was, it was a, it was a Friday night. The place was packed. Uh, and this was, the type of entertainment in a theater with a packed audience you simply don't see anymore. Never had anything else on his mind but B-movie conviction. It was Chuck Norris kicking some maniac murderer type of uh, uh, character. I thought the guy who who played that uh, villain in this film was quite effective. I thought the movie was a lot of fun. Uh, I thought it worked. And I... To this day, I still enjoy it. I wish they made movies like this. So it's sort of harking back to when movies were this type of thing. So Silent Rage is my number 10. Number nine, I went with The Substitute 2 uh, with Treat Williams. The first one starred Tom Ballinger. Uh, it was recast with Treat Williams about a, a substitute teacher that cleans up crime in the school. Uh, I thought Treat Williams was a lot of fun. I watched this movie, I think, on, uh, it was 98. I think I watched it on VHS. I didn't see it in the theater. I went up renting it. I had a great time watching it, so that's my number nine. Number eight, this is a little bit of a big budget movie, but I still put it in the B-movie category from 88. And it, I find this interesting in terms of film history because it's called Hard Rain. It's a disaster uh, heist thriller with Christian Slater and Morgan Freeman. 
and this was the last pinnacle of Christian Slater starring in a movie. This movie did not do financially well in theaters. I think it made like ten million dollars total. But I thought it was a good movie. It was very entertaining. Uh, it, uh, it, 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 had good action sequences. Betty White had a, a, a funny supporting role in this movie. I thought the effects were good. Morgan Freeman is always good. Also, Ed Asner is in the film. But I like Christian Slater a lot. And he, they paired him up with Mimi, Mini Driver of uh, Goodwill Hunting fame. And there's a sequence in a in a prison cell where he's where he's in it and, and it's flooding, and she has to rescue him. And I, I thought it was really. I just like this movie a lot. So number eight is Hard Rain. Number seven, now I'm going back to the 80s, uh, 82, a movie called Fighting Back with uh, Tom Skerritt. Now I like Tom Skerritt a lot and he's really good. He plays a character called John D'Angelo and it supposedly was based on some true events about a business uh, storefront owner who helps clean up his neighborhood when it gets out of control and basically becomes a vigilante. I thought Tom Skerritt is an excellent actor, so he sort of elevates the B-movie roots of this material. I saw this one in a theater. It's sort of, you know, aping the Death Wish stuff, but it's very effective, and you can't get it, I don't think, on DVD or Blu-ray. You have to find it in some obscure scenes. They might be on YouTube, but Fighting Back, I like a lot from 82, so that's my number seven. And my number six, another movie that I used to watch religiously on VHS, it was called Class of 1984. Perry King, who is really good in this movie, plays a school teacher who has to clean up his school. There's always a theme with this cleaning up the school, but it seems like a, a, a genre that always works if it's done well. Timothy Van Patten plays a sort of a punk rock gang leader who also is a classical musician. Now, Timothy Van Patten went on to direct a lot of episodes of The Sopranos and Bullwark Empire. He's very talented, and he's a good actor. And Ken, he gives a really good performance in Class of 84. Roddy McDowell's also in this movie playing a teacher. He has one scene in this film, which is really cool. And Michael J. Fox, two years before Back to, Back to the Future, before he's became a, a household name, He's about 20 pounds heavier in this movie, and he's not well known. He plays a supporting role, but I love Class of 1984. Thought-provoking, a director named Richard Lester directed it. Uh, Thought-provoking, well done, completely B-movie, but the type of film uh, in the 80s that you'd watch multiple times on VHS in the comfort of your living room. So that's my 10 through 6. I was tempted to just use the entire Selma Blair filmology for my B-movie <laughs> list. Because, uh, talk about, you know, somebody's made a career on B-movies, but, you know, I had to do some research on all this stuff. Because, yeah, I, I'm assuming and, you did. I did too also. Some of it popped in my head, but some of it I had to... Well, even, even on the... Oh, because there's no agreed definition of what a B-movie is. No, 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 there now, is not. Now, I it agree come, it, the, the term comes from the fact that they actually used to just like uh, just like forty five RPM records. They actually used to film uh, release films in a package, an A and a B for double features. And of course, the B was the. I did not know the, that. I, I didn't know that either. And then, of course, yeah. it became low budget movies. And then we even got into as we you know now we're saying oh two hundred million or less B themed movies. Because even some high budget movies like your beloved. Poseidon Adventure and Earthquake and uh, Towering Inferno, they actually have their roots back in that B-movie genre. Maybe, maybe. 
except they're expensive films. Right, they're expensive movies, right. But, I mean, so so my first one is from Uh 1989. This movie has the highest star-to-dollar ratio ever on IMDb. It had 4.2 stars, and each star cost just a little bit over $2,000 because the total cost of this movie was about $10,000, mostly for Slim Jims and Budweiser. The movie is called Redneck Zombies. It, it started. <laughs> it. it started, and it only is on video. Basically, started yeah. anyone who was around at the time they were they were filming. <laughs> uh, the, these guys find a barrel of radioactive waste, and they end up using it as part of their still, and it turns them into zombies. And some of the because you know B movies also have to be quirky. Some of the characters in the movie. Are Dr. Ben Casey and Dr. Kildare, of course, from TV fame. Not the actors who played them, of course. Just they, B-movies can't come up with their own names for stuff. The next one, there's, there's actually two movies that were made. Same movie. Uh, it's a Dashiell Hammett story. It gives us that second most famous Humphrey Bogart quote. What is that? It's the stuff that dreams are made of. Um, the Maltese Falcon actually began in 1931 as a film starring B.B. Daniels and Ricardo Cortez. Uh, It was remade by John Huston in 41. It only had a $400,000 budget. Huston was popping out a whole bunch of movies uh, as the world was headed towards war uh, and we were trying to entertain people anywhere we could. But you know, the Maltese Falcon 31 or Bogey in 41 playing Sam Spade is my is my number nine. Okay. Uh, my number eight, um, I, I, I can't do this without doing a Sir, Sergio Leone movie. Uh, this movie, of course, starred Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, Lee Van Cleef, and a whole bunch of Italians, just like every one of these movies did. It was the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, I mean, it gave us that spaghetti western, which was its own subgenre of the B-movie. The cheap western filmed in Italy with a bunch of Italians and you know they were all the same script over and over again and mostly the same actors I think it was the cut down on travel costs or something <laughs> my seventh one I don't even know what the budget of this movie was whatever they spent on it it was too much but since last week it was dethroned as the worst movie of all time the movie about a nuclear powered bus going from New York to Colorado that gets sabotaged by the oil lobby. Of course, it's 1976's The Big Bus, which starred Joseph Bologna, Stockton Channing, and Ned Beatty. The three of them probably never like it when anybody remembers that movie. The second worst movie of all time. I don't know, I like it better than that. You know, I told the audience before that evidently, and I think this would have been really, really interesting, that Steven Spielberg's first choice actually for uh, Brody in Jaws was Joseph Bologna. He had a feel about him. He thought he would fit. The studio didn't like it. They ultimately wound going with Roy Scheider, who, of course, was iconic. But I actually, I see in my mind's eye, I could see Joseph Bologna as as, as Sheriff as is uh, is Brody in, in, in Jaws. I, I think that would work. Me too. Hey, now my, yeah. my my number six is from 1960. It starred Jonathan Hayes and Jackie Joseph, of course. Two huge stars. Have you ever heard of either one of them? No, uh, I have not. Uh, Jackie uh, Joseph's uh, 
starred as Audrey. Uh, Jonathan Hayes started as, starred as Seymour. Jack Nicholson starred as Wilbur. And of course it was Little Shop of Horrors, the non-musical black and white version from 1960. That's a good B-movie. That is a good movie. I like that movie. I, she, that is a, I, I, I screened that a couple years ago because it was uh, public domain. So I'd have to, we'd have to pay for the rights during Halloween week. And I never see, saw it before. I got to tell you, I, I really did enjoy it. I thought Nicholson, you know, when you watched him in that movie, he, to say he's over the top would be an understatement. But he was so over the top, it's almost hard to imagine that the career, the amazing career he wound up having. But boy, oh boy, was he over the top. Yeah, you know you've made a cheap movie and a movie that didn't do much when you allow yeah. it to go into the public domain. That's all I'm saying. I, I would agree. So now we'll do a five through one, one at a time. My number five, uh, this is not a low-budget movie, but it is a B-movie. And it was the, probably the last hurrah of Steven Seagal theatrically before he started to really uh, have a very bumpy ride going forward. And that was Under Siege 2 from 1995. Three years removed from Under Siege, which I think was Seagal's best film. He had the best talent around him. So they do a sequel three years later. Uh, Catherine Heigl, who went on to become uh, big on Grey's Anatomy, plays his niece. Eric Bogosian, who did a radio or did her off-Broadway, uh, oh, I think it was off-Broadway, called Talk Radio, which they made a movie out of. He plays the villain in this movie, uh, Eric Dane, uh, Eric Dane I, I think his name was. And he had a quote in that movie, which I always remember. He said, chance is the, uh, is the essence of desire. Uh, and I always liked that line. I thought he was a good villain. I thought Seagal was really cool. It takes place on a, on a train. Uh, it has a lot of good scenes. Seagal's super likable. I think it's very effective. When it came out, the studio did not screen it in advance for the critics because they thought they had a dud on their hands. It may not have made a lot of money, but Cisco Niebuhr wound up giving it a thumbs up. I saw it opening weekend. I thought it was terrific actually for for that genre so i always like this movie it's one of my movies that i could pop on uh blu-ray or stream when i'm looking for something to enjoy as a simple time killer on a rainy night so i love me some under siege 2 from 95 that's my number five my number five uh, great title it's from 1965 the title is faster pussycat kill kill i mean what a great title for a b movie be I and mean, before we had spielberg before we had Scorsese, we had Russ Meyer. And Russ, we have? Russ Meyer. Russ oh, Ma yeah, yeah, okay. No, known for all these famous sexploitation films, uh, where the B stood for boob as well as being a B movie. Uh, it was about three go-go dancers who conspire to defraud a, a villainous old man. And like any other Russ Meyer film, it had a real grungy quality to it, race car driving, women punching and being punched in the face, and yeah, you could have called this movie Twin Peaks as well, looking at some of the women that were in it, and a big dumb idiot named uh, Vegetable. It's one of those movies, if you just want something that's just this side of the of the unrated uh, softcore porn, it would be a Russ Meyer film, and that would be Faster Pussycat. Kill, kill, my number five. You know what's interesting about Russ Meyer, because I just mentioned Roger Ebert. Russ Meyer did Valley of the Dolls, right? Yes. And then Roger Ebert wound up actually writing a script, which was, which was a sequel beyond the Valley of the Dolls.
Charles. Uh, so he has a, he had a connection with Ross Meyer back in the day. Yeah, but yeah, Ross Meyer clearly an exploitation, low budget uh, type of filmmaker back in that time period. Uh, interesting pick, Ken. My number four. I went with a movie that they don't make movies like this anymore. I love this movie. It's called Eight Millimeter. Joel Schumacher who went really edgy in this movie. He's a terrific director with it falling down. He gets a lot of flack for Batman and Robin. But this is a great, nah, I won't use a great, this is a really good exploitation B movie. Uh, this is a studio film, but Nicolas Cage plays a guy who, who investigates, he's hired to investigate a murder of a girl who was killed making a snuff film. And he goes into a very dark world. Joaquin Phoenix is in this movie. Uh, James Gagliaffini. It's 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 dark. Uh, it's real dark, but it's real good. And Nicolas Cage is terrific. It's definitely uh, at its roots a B movie. And this is a type of film they simply don't make anymore, especially for theatrical release. But eight millimeter from 1999. If people in the audience haven't seen it, rent it, stream it. You won't be disappointed. This is a good one. That's my number four. And about the same time as we had Spielberg, we had the Chiodo brothers. They only actually directed and produced one film. It was 1988. The film, you know, B-films, we, a lot of times we have aliens in them. This, this movie has aliens, of course. These aliens come to Earth in a giant circus tent. It is Killer Clowns from Outer Space from 1988. And, you know, they come down here and they... Uh, Turn people into cotton candy and then eat them. You see, you can't have a B movie if it makes any sense. What's the haul? It is probably one of the craziest 1980s horror flicks, if you want to call it that. But it is also, like I said, the uh, the Chiodo brothers would go on and do special effects for other movies, but after this one, they never tried to uh, direct again. Killer clowns from outer space. My number Here's four. The thing, you know, when you when you mention that movie, like I I hearken back and I say to myself that this generation is being robbed of the beauty and the joy of going to your local mom and pop video store, seeing a box on the shelf of a movie you never heard of, and renting it, taking it home, and going, "Wow, is that really cool?" Because I remember going having that experience with this movie. And saying to myself, holy smoke, this is really inventive. It's super cool. It's going on to have a big cult following. It plays a lot of drive-in uh, theaters and festivals. This movie still holds up very well as well for what it is, a low-budget B-movie with a lot of inventive skill. And, uh, boy, I do miss those days when you could really do that. And this is an example of a B-movie, a clearly a B-movie, but had a lot of inventiveness that was a lot of fun. And it was so much a pure joy to discover this type of material in a video store. Boy, do I miss that day, Ken. My number three, I went with the movie that I, that I was a big fan of. This movie actually made some money in theaters, but they certainly don't move, make movies like this in a theater. Uh, the Principal from 87 with James Bellucci, Lou Gossett Jr., about a guy who uh, James Bellucci gets, uh, gets uh, told that he has to substitute teach in high school i think it's due to uh, a drunk driving charge and uh has to clean it up there's some really nasty high school kids in this movie james bellucci who did a lot of comedies really good in this movie in a more dramatic role luke gossett jr it's a lot of fun in the supporting part movie has very effective audience 
sharing scenes if you saw this in the theater in 87 i think it holds up beautifully i watched it last month on 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 stream i think it was on amazon prime so the principal with james bellucci from 1987 a super fun entertaining be fair that uh, is well worth seeing that's my number three ken my number three probably was the forerunner of rick moranis and honey i shrunk the kids we have to go back to 1967 jack arnold was the director and it this movie produced uh, it combines uh really cheap movie making but innovative special effects and actually a good story and uh Scott Casey is exposed to radioactive cloud and he begins to get smaller and smaller and doctors can't stop it. And he soon learns the perils of being an incredibly shrinking man. It's the incredible shrinking man from 1967. Something we've seen done after that, but it actually was a very good film. And it's another one of those ones that you really like it because the special effects and the movie making is so cheap. You don't take any of it seriously. You know he's not going to get, you know, he, he's not going to get eaten by the spider or the ant. Or else, you know, you won't make it to the end of the movie. But that's my number three, The Incredible Shrinking Man, 1967. They wound up remaking that movie with as with uh, Incredible Shrinking Woman with Lily Tomlin. It, I don't think it worked very well, but it, in its low-budget roots, I thought it was a, a, a lot of fun. My number two... Uh, I, I went with the movie Nobody that came out a few, couple years ago during COVID in 2021. Uh, and, and this movie uh, was, I thought, uh, really, really highly entertaining. I didn't know what to expect. It stars uh, Better Call Saul uh, actor who did a great job in this movie. Uh, I, I thought the, 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 the fight scenes were great. I thought the backstory was very intriguing. I hope they do a sequel to this movie. I didn't know what to expect when I went into the theater to watch it, but I had a great time watching it. And again, this is one of those genres that I really dig. Uh, Bob Odenkirk uh, yep. uh, is the lead. I thought he was really good in this movie. He's a fantastic actor. I thought he, he relished this type of material because I don't think he's ever done anything like it. And uh, from the producers of John Wick, this movie really delivered, I hope for a sequel, but uh, this was a, what they call a, a, a immediate hidden treasure. Nobody, uh, I like a lot, is my number two. My number two comes from 1965. Uh, it stars Vincent Price, and it's not a horror movie. It is Vincent Price. It's a spoof of the James Bond movies. He is the nefarious Dr. Goldfoot whose only defining characteristic is he wears a pointy gold pair of shoes, which we don't really know why. Uh, there's a lot of busty women in it. Uh, he creates uh, female uh, automatons to sleep with various world leaders and captains of industry. It's everything you want from a B-grade film in the 60s. Uh, a lot of scantily clad women. It wraps up with a five-minute chase sequence that rivals the infamous 1966 Batman some days you just can't get rid of a bomb sequence. It is <laughs> Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. What better title? Oh, go on, go out and rend it. Go out and rend it. Yeah. That's so number good. two. You recommend it. I do. I do. Okay. Here's my number one. And I always said, and I told Mike, this is, for whatever reason, this is my favorite B-movie uh, I think of all time because it's 
it's so over the top to a point, but I still grounded it in Charles Bronson, and that's Death Wish 3, the third entry in the Death Wish franchise from 85. Takes place in one of the inner cities in New York where Bronson has to clean up the neighborhood. What I like about this movie is Ed Lauder, who is in uh, The Longest Yard, he plays a police chief who sits down with Kersey, knows his reputation, and basically gives him full autonomy to basically kill all the bad thugs in the neighborhood to clean it up. Now, I don't know if, how that would happen, but that's what happens in this movie. Uh, Martin Balsam is in it. This is the last half hour is just Bronson mowing down the bad guys from one block to the next. And there's a really cool scene in this movie where Bronson tells the apartment complex uh, neighbors that he's trying to help. That you know, help is on the way. Willie is on the way. Willie is on the way. And you say when you're watching him, who's Willie? And it turns out to be it's a high-powered gun that comes uh, to the post office that 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 he uses to help kill the bad guys. Yeah, it's exploitation. Uh, it's a canon movie. Michael Winner, same director who did all the other Death Wish, most of the Death Wish movies, the first two actually, comes back to direct this one. Uh, Bronson evidently knew this was over the top. He did it anyway, but it just plays out like a 90-minute, super entertaining B-film uh, exploitation. But Bronson delivered that in spades, and I love me some Death Wish, Death Wish 3. So that is now and will probably always be my number one favorite B-movie of all time. My number one, uh, it was a tele- made-for-television movie, although it did earn a whopping $200,000 from 200 screenings in the Regal Cinemas back there in uh, 2013. It was it had a it had a uh, uh, a two million dollar two hundred million two million it had a small budget let me say that uh, but even more than that it was yeah you know, a two million dollar budget but it was filmed in eighteen days because they wanted to save on hotel costs and the like it spawned five sequels and three spinoffs and wow. an entire and an an entire. Uh, that group of devotees. Of course, it is 2013's absolutely crazy movie that is, it's an even worse premise than Revenge of, you know, Jaws the Revenge. It is Sharknado from 2013. Let me tell you something about Sharknado. Uh, I'm a big fan of that franchise, especially the, the, I'm sort of perplexed why they stopped doing it. I guess the rate of viewership of Sci-Fi Channel has gone down. But Ian Ziering, who was on Beverly Hills 90021 fame, won. He looked really good uh, physically. He he knew how to play this material. Yeah, it was absurd, but it also was a uh, a, a basic cable TV event. And when, they, when each one of these premiered, they got bigger and bigger, a little bit more bombastic to say the least. But I do enjoy this franchise. So as a B-movie, I think Sharknado is a lot of fun, and so is most of the sequels can so i actually like a lot your number one pick that's a that's a good one i'm a, i am a fan of this franchise this, this one was this one was fun because it was uh we had to do some uh digging yes i mean nobody's gonna mistake tara reed as a good actress but uh she gave it a role that's to right say the least so uh so, so again i've had a lot of fun on this installment uh to the audience thanks for listening See you next week, and hey, a lot of good movies coming out. Hopefully, go to the movies. See you next week, Ken. Bye, Chuck. Thanks for listening. 
to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts by Federated Media.